Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. After the tumultuous years of World War II, life in America began to return to some semblance of normalcy. Massive changes were afoot including rapid growth of the economy that was driven by wartime production. However, in the small town of Jordan Valley in Oregon, the pace of life remained mostly unchanged. Ranchers returned to their farms, tending to their livestock and fields much like they had for generations. One balmy afternoon in October 1946, one rancher set out on a routine trip from his farm in Caldwell, Idaho, to his ranch in Jordan Valley. The desolate highway stretched out before him, except for the occasional passing car. As he rounded a bend in the road, he observed a man pulled over to the side with his hood up, indicating trouble. As he drew closer, he recognized the man as somebody who had previously worked for him. He slowed his car and approached to offer assistance. After crouching down to examine the engine, he felt a heavy object crash down onto his skull sending a wave of pain throughout his body. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 71 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. By the middle of 1927, Gladys June Ralphs was a 20-year-old woman living in the small town of Minadoka, Idaho. She was the middle of five children born into a conventional Mormon family, but she possessed ambitions that surpassed the confines of Minadoka, which boasted a mere population of 200 people at the time. On May 19, 1927, 
she married a man named William Basil Hendricks, to the dismay of his family, who believed he was too young for such a commitment. The couple set their roots in Burley, Idaho, but the union quickly encountered turmoil. As William's mother, Margaret, recalled, they only lived together three days when Gladys, aided by her parents, began a divorce suit. Gladys didn't let much time pass before embarking on a new relationship with Albert Ernest Richardson, a railroad clerk who she married on August 6, 1928. However, by March 1931, the couple had separated. Gladys spent the next seven years touring with her family and their band, the Ralph's Novelty Orchestra. Music ran in the family's veins, and Gladys, with a passion for the piano, showcased her talent. The next man that Gladys shacked up with was Carol M. Anderson. Residing in Sacramento, California at the time, they exchanged vows on January 30, 1939. Gladys subsequently moved into her new husband's home in Westwood, California. Nevertheless, akin to the previous marriages, this union proved fleeting. Within a year, they were divorced, and both went their separate ways. Only 16 months after her third marriage, Gladys settled down with Virgil D. Warner. The couple married on June 9, 1940, in the Reno Baptist Church. They relocated to Medford in Oregon, where Virgil took up employment as a sawmill worker. This marriage wasn't successful, and by the end of the year, Gladys had returned to Sacramento and filed for yet another divorce. The allure and grandeur of the bustling city captivated her, and Medford could not provide the excitement she had sought her entire life. By the time Gladys crossed paths with Lieutenant Leslie Lincoln, World War II had already engulfed the world. Leslie was a geologist by profession, but he had joined the Army in November 1940 to defend his country. Enthralled by Gladys, he fell deeply in love and they exchanged vows at Fort Ord on January 28, 1942. On their marriage license, Gladys deceitfully claimed she was 32 years old when she was actually 35. She also claimed that this was her second marriage, when in fact it was her fifth. Their marriage differed from the previous ones as Leslie spent prolonged periods away from home, fulfilling his military duties. This granted Gladys the freedom to pursue whomever she pleased. Through her letters, she took great pleasure in making Leslie jealous by divulging her interactions with other men during his absence. In November 1944, Leslie was discharged from the Army and the couple moved to Taft in California, where they lived until 1945. From there, they moved back to Sacramento and trouble soon began to surface. Gladys had enjoyed the freedom awarded to her by a husband away from home. There was also another problem. Gladys had become addicted to Nembutal, a sleeping tablet, which left her sleeping most of the day. The problems in their marriage escalated even further when Gladys set her sights on a new man, Dr. Willis D. Broadhurst. Broadhurst was 11 years her senior, and he was an esteemed physician who had since quit the rat race to become a wealthy rancher in Caldwell, Idaho. 
Gladys first met Dr. Broadhurst back in 1920 when he was taking special studies at Albion State Normal School in Idaho. By 1924, he had graduated from the Palmer School for Chiropractic Medicine in Davenport, Iowa. Shortly thereafter, he established his own medical practice in Burley. Their paths crossed once more in 1927, when Dr. Broadhurst was summoned to the Ralph's residence to administer medical treatment to Gladys's father. Victor Kerr, a trusted family friend, recalled, He was really mad about her, and when, after they'd known each other about six weeks, she suddenly married William Hendricks, he really took it hard. Dr. Broadhurst eventually relocated to Caldwell, Idaho, where he built a successful medical practice. However, in 1944, he retired and embraced the life of a prosperous rancher. He accumulated substantial wealth, amassing two expansive land parcels, including a lucrative cattle ranch in Jordan Valley, amounting to an impressive net worth of around $200,000, which is about $3 million today. On August 20th, 1945, Gladys wrote a telegram to Dr. Broadhurst and inquired about his marital status and potential heirs. He eagerly responded, Just arrived home from a vacation and found your telegram awaiting me, so I hurry to answer it and state that there is no missus, hence no children. As to any other heirs, I have none. I am anxiously awaiting a letter giving me all the details of your past, present, and future. Especially anxious to learn about your folks, as I always thought much of them. With calculated intent, Gladys devised a scheme to ensnare Dr. Broadhurst. She fabricated a story of her deceased Aunt Mary from Hawaii, claiming an inheritance of around $3 million. In another telegram, she wrote to him, As it is more than I have ever dreamed of owning, and more than I could possibly manage, I have determined to share a small portion with those in my life who have meant the most. I would like to provide a small gift to you. If you would like that, I will instruct my attorney to include you in the disbursement. Due to the size of the estate, I have been advised it will be some time before the legal requirements are finalized. Dr. Broadhurst fell hook, line, and sinker, and commented to a friend that Gladys was the only woman who had ever satisfied him. Over the following months, the relationship between Gladys and Dr. Broadhurst blossomed. He was blissfully unaware that she was still married to Leslie. After New Year's Day 1946, Dr. Broadhurst traveled to Sacramento. He checked in to the Senator Hotel, where Gladys met him. After the meeting, Gladys concocted a contingency plan should Dr. Broadhurst ever bump into her husband, Leslie. She claimed that Leslie had died during the war and that she was being pursued by his identical twin brother, Lester. She said that once Lester learned about her incoming inheritance, he forced himself upon her and tried to assume the identity of her deceased husband, Leslie. Dr. Broadhurst told Gladys that he would protect her. When he returned to Caldwell at the end of February, they continued their relationship via letters. On April 24th, 1946, 
Leslie filed for divorce from his wife, citing her cruel treatment of him. However, he had a change of heart just five days later and decided to try and reconcile. Unbeknownst to Leslie, Gladys had already set her sights on a new man. Gladys next wove a tale for Dr. Broadhurst, declaring that she was unwell and that they should marry to prevent her inheritance from going to Lester. Just three weeks after Gladys and Leslie seemingly found common ground, both Gladys and Dr. Broadhurst embarked on separate journeys to Reno, Nevada, where they secretly checked into a hotel together. Gladys had told Leslie that she was visiting family. It was in this clandestine setting that Dr. Broadhurst proposed to Gladys, and they were married during a simple service on May 20, 1946. They agreed to keep their marriage a secret for the time being, after Gladys shared her fear that Lester would find out. The truth, however, was that she was afraid Leslie would find out. It was also decided that Gladys would return to Sacramento to begin packing, while Dr. Broadhurst returned to Caldwell. The plan was for him to drive to Sacramento in July to bring Gladys back to Caldwell with him. Despite being physically apart, the couple maintained a frequent exchange of correspondence. Dr. Broadhurst's letters often carried an undertone of worry for his newly wedded wife's safety and well-being. In a letter, he wrote, While at Sisters, I had a dream, and I told her that things weren't going so well with you, and I'd bet you had had another mix-up with that brute. Driven by concern, Dr. Broadhurst took action to help protect Gladys. He sent her $200 and told her to escape from Sacramento and book a hotel on Long Island. In another letter, he said he would pay for some new clothing. The letter read in part, Honey sweet, for gosh sake, buy yourself some clothes as you certainly need not go around in tatters. Clothes certainly don't make the man, but they help the appearance a lot, and you can be so darn cute when you really fix up. One morning, however, Leslie retrieved the post before Gladys could reach it. He read one of the letters from Dr. Broadhurst and learned that Gladys was married to another man. He was furious and met with his attorney, who added bigamy as an additional cause of the divorce. On the morning of July 23rd, Dr. Broadhurst left his ranch in Jordan Valley and traversed the winding roads all the way to Sacramento. When he arrived at the hotel where Gladys was staying after Leslie kicked her out of the home, he was taken aback by her condition. The Numbutal she was addicted to had made her groggy, and he suggested she cut back on the sleeping medication. The couple returned to Caldwell, where Dr. Broadhurst put Gladys into hospital to help her overcome her addiction. After two weeks, Gladys was allowed to leave the hospital. The newly married couple returned to Jordan Valley just in time for the haying season. Within the vast expanse of the ranch, Dr. Broadhurst commanded a small but dedicated workforce. Among them was the young and promising 23-year-old Alvin Lee Williams. As days unfolded on the ranch, Gladys and Dr. Broadhurst enjoyed one another's company. However, Gladys soon became aware that Sheriff A.A. Moline of Canyon County, Idaho, had received a request to serve an amended divorce complaint by Leslie. 
It added bigamy as an additional cause of the divorce, and he attempted to serve these documents to Gladys. However, by this time, Gladys was already in Jordan County with Dr. Broadhurst. It quickly dawned on her that the facade of her newly found happiness was in danger. If Dr. Broadhurst learned that she was still married when she had married him, no doubt he would file for divorce. On August 2nd, Gladys told Dr. Broadhurst she needed to return to California to take care of business and to finalize the estate of her late Aunt Mary. The ranch had been particularly busy over the summer, and Dr. Broadhurst said he could drive her and stay with her for two or three days maximum. According to Gladys, this wasn't nearly enough time, but Dr. Broadhurst had an idea. He would have Alvin Williams be her chauffeur and stay with her in California for 10 days while she took care of business. For the job, he would pay him $5 per day. While Dr. Broadhurst thought it was a great idea, his family felt he was foolish. He laughed it off and said that Williams was harmless, an underprivileged boy that he was trying to make something out of. On the morning of August 5th, 1946, Gladys and Williams set off to Sacramento in Dr. Broadhurst's 1941 Chevrolet Deluxe Coupe. The expectation was for the trip to last a mere two weeks, but Gladys and Williams would end up staying in California for six weeks. On their first day, they watched a movie and then returned to their car. Williams recalled, She made a remark I looked an awful lot like one of her brothers. Then she asked if I minded if she gave me a kiss on the cheek. I told her I didn't care. She kissed me. Afterwards, she kissed him on the lips. Over the next three days, they slept together in a pup tent after Gladys told Williams she was afraid to sleep alone. On the fourth day, they drove to Bakersfield, where they registered in a hotel as husband and wife. From here, they continued on to Sacramento, where Williams met Leslie, although Gladys tried to pass him off as her fifth husband's evil twin, Lester. Things took a drastic turn when Gladys and Williams secretly tied the knot in Reno on September 17th, using the fake names of Elaine Hamilton and Albert Williams. This marked Williams as Gladys's seventh husband and the third man she was still married to. Upon arriving in Sacramento, Gladys didn't contest the divorce proceedings initiated by Leslie. She informed him that she was very happy with her sixth husband. He was oblivious to the fact that she had just married her seventh. A few days after the wedding, Gladys told William that she was a minister, and that since they had already broken one commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, it would be no worse to commit murder. She went on to say that Dr. Broadhurst was more an animal than a man, and that she would rather be with him. She asked Williams whether he could run the ranch if Dr. Broadhurst were to die, and he confirmed that he could. Gladys then expressed her desire to have Dr. Broadhurst disappear, but first, she needed to have his will amended so that she was the sole beneficiary. Upon Gladys' return from Sacramento, 
Dr. Broadhurst noticed that her demeanor had changed and she seemed more distant than usual. His suspicions grew, especially regarding her relationship with Williams. Despite this, on September 25th, he amended his will at her request and made her the sole heir to his estate. A couple of days later, the doctor embarked on a hunting trip with his nephew, unaware of the danger lurking behind the scenes. The day before the trip, Gladys had asked Williams to follow them and kill Dr. Broadhurst, making it appear as a hunting accident. However, there was a significant hurdle. Williams didn't own a car. Gladys had a solution. She obtained money from her husband and then handed it to Williams, who purchased a cheap Ford coupe. He then returned to Gladys to discuss the plan in more detail, but they ultimately decided against it as it was too risky. Dr. Broadhurst and his nephew traveled out to the Selway Falls district to hunt. While here, he confided in his nephew that he thought something was going on between his wife and Williams, adding that he was going to file for divorce unless she could commit to being a better wife. Little did he know, something much more sinister was brewing. The grim plot began to unfold on the evening of October 13, 1946. Gladys was aware that her husband would be traveling from the ranch in Caldwell to the ranch in Jordan Valley the next morning. It was then that she went to Williams and gave him the order. Get up there, be there when he gets there, and for God's sake, don't miss. Williams was reluctant, admitting to Gladys that the sight of blood made him feel ill. Gladys offered him a bottle of whiskey to settle his nerves and help him execute the plan. At around midnight, Williams drove out to the Idaho-Oregon-Nevada Highway, making sure to take the same route that Dr. Broadhurst would have taken. He was driving around 14 miles north of Jordan Valley when he pulled over to the side of the road. It was early in the morning, so he slept in a bedroll at the side of the road. He raised the hood of his car to give the impression he was having mechanical trouble and lay in wait. At about 3 p.m., Dr. Broadhurst came along the road, driving a truck pulling a horse trailer which contained his horse, Rex. As he drew closer, Williams flagged him down and asked whether he could help him to repair a choked gasoline line. Williams recalled, I asked the doctor if he had a pair of pliers and the doctor went back to his truck for them. Dr. Broadhurst then returned to William's car and bent over the carburetor, which is a device for supplying a spark ignition engine with a mixture of fuel and air. Seconds later, William struck him over the head several times with a 12-inch wrench that dazed him, but it didn't kill him. Dr. Broadhurst fell backwards onto the gravel and staggered to find his footing. Confused, he called out, what hit me? And Williams replied, I don't know, Doc. Once Dr. Broadhurst got up, he saw Williams standing there with the wrench. He charged toward Williams, who responded by reaching into his vehicle and grabbing a shotgun. He swiftly turned around and shot Dr. Broadhurst once in the chest. The gunshot wound didn't kill him. He managed to get back up and stumbled toward his car before collapsing on the highway. 
As he lay fatally wounded, a truck came up the highway. Williams rolled Dr. Broadhurst over to a pit at the side of the road and covered him with a blanket and left him to die. Once the coast was clear, Williams attempted to carry Dr. Broadhurst into his car, but he was too heavy. He decided instead to leave him in the pit covered with the blanket. Williams then drove Dr. Broadhurst's truck a mile down the highway and took the horse from the trailer. He tied the horse to a nearby bush before fleeing from the scene in his own car. Hours later, under the cover of darkness, Williams returned to the scene. He carted Dr. Broadhurst's body into his car and then drove north for almost 20 miles. He stopped in one of the most remote sections of the desert and dumped the body under sagebrush. He then drove back to the Caldwell Ranch where he tapped on Gladys's window and told her what he had done. He informed her that he hadn't yet disposed of the evidence, and she encouraged him to do so immediately and then come back. He then burned his clothing and the blanket before he returned to his home in Parma and got another hat. He returned to the Caldwell Ranch, parked his car outside, and went to bed. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Dr. Broadhurst failed to arrive at the farm in Jordan Valley, he was reported missing by his nephew. A search was immediately launched, and detectives spoke with Gladys, who suggested that her husband had fallen victim to an abduction. They theorized that the abduction was driven by somebody who wanted to steal the substantial sum of money he always carried. She then told detectives to look for a man named Wells, who had been fired by Dr. Broadhurst a short time beforehand. Detectives were able to track down Stover Red Wells, who had previously worked for Dr. Broadhurst at the ranch. However, he told detectives he wasn't fired by Dr. Broadhurst, but instead had to quit because his mother had died. He assured detectives that he and Dr. Broadhurst had parted on good terms. As the search for Dr. Broadhurst intensified, a foreboding series of discoveries unfolded along the stretch of highway where he was killed. Dr. F.L. Adams was driving along when his eyes caught a grim sight, a large puddle of blood in the middle of the highway. He drove to the nearest police station to report his findings. Simultaneously, Lionel Crawl, a close friend of Dr. Broadhurst, stumbled upon his horse tethered to a tree along the highway. Nearby, he found his truck and trailer. Detectives swiftly converged upon the scene where it appeared to them as though something nefarious had happened. But still, Dr. Broadhurst was nowhere to be found. Back at the family home, Gladys had a new theory of what had happened to her husband. She suggested that he had been killed by her late husband's evil twin, Lester. 
She claimed that this theory was fueled by a handwritten note she had received from Lester, which read, Your cowboy strong arm didn't do it, but don't start anything or I will get you. Same as I did, doctor. I warn you, I need cash. Two days later, detectives got their first tip. They were contacted by a man named Dave Wallace, who said he had seen a car parked near where the blood had been discovered on the same day Dr. Broadhurst disappeared. He described the car, which matched the description of a vehicle provided by another eyewitness. Clifford Dixon told detectives that he had seen a car parked near the spot where the blood was found three times on the day Dr. Broadhurst disappeared. The third time he passed, he asked whether the occupant needed assistance, and he was told that he was waiting for a friend to get car parts. The car was traced back to Alvin Williams, but when they went to speak with him, they noticed that his car had been freshly painted and the tires had been changed. On October 17th, Alvin Williams was arrested and brought to the police station to be interviewed. Williams, first of all, denied any knowledge of Dr. Broadhurst's whereabouts. He claimed that on the day Dr. Broadhurst disappeared, he had been at an auction in Ontario, Oregon. Detectives looked into his alibi and learned there had been an auction in Ontario, but it was the day after. When Williams was presented with contradictions in his alibi, he broke down. He admitted that Dr. Broadhurst was dead and that he had killed him. He divulged that he and Gladys had conspired together while in California to commit the murder. He led detectives to Dr. Broadhurst's body and then to the shotgun which he had stashed in a badger hole near Old Sucker Creek. As Williams was transported back to jail, Dr. Broadhurst's body was transported to the medical examiner's office. The autopsy was performed by Dr. Joseph Beeman who found that he had suffered a gunshot wound to the chest and blunt force trauma to the head. Gladys was immediately arrested, and on October 18th, she and Williams were charged with first-degree murder. Gladys was additionally charged with being an accessory after the fact. On October 22nd, the funeral procession for Dr. Broadhurst made its way to a funeral chapel in Caldwell. Hundreds of mourners filed in to pay their respects to the beloved physician and rancher. Gladys's two brothers, Jess and Tony Ralphs, walked solemnly as pallbearers, carrying the casket to the altar where Dr. H. H. Heyman of the College of Idaho officiated the service. Afterwards, Dr. Broadhurst's body was taken to St. Anthony, his birthplace, for burial. Meanwhile, Gladys issued a statement through her defense attorney, Cleve Groom. She maintains that she has not at any time had anything to do with any speech, action, or otherwise with any person whatsoever, and has not done or said anything which would aid or abet or which would lead to the attack upon, slaying, or death of the late Dr. W.D. Broadhurst. Attorney Groom went on to explain that the marriage between Gladys and Dr. Broadhurst had been the result of a long admiration for one another that extended over 20 years. With Gladys behind bars fighting extradition, her fifth husband, Leslie, was granted an interlocutory divorce decree. As the investigation continued, detectives unearthed the motivation behind the murder. 
they discovered that Gladys had been married five times previously and that Dr. Broadhurst had recently changed his will to leave everything to her. When Gladys was informed by detectives that they speculated she was after Dr. Broadhurst's money, she weaved them the same lies she had weaved for her late husband. She claimed she didn't need money because she was set to inherit $3 million from her deceased aunt. As for Leslie, she continued to maintain that he had died overseas and the man who was granted the interlocutory divorce decree was, in fact, his evil identical twin, Lester. Detectives learned from Leslie's mother that Lester did not exist and that Leslie had no twin brother or any brother. They also learned that Aunt Mary was alive and well in Hawaii, and while she was well off, she certainly didn't have a $3 million fortune. Dr. Broadhurst's three sisters, Anna Adams, Bertha Jack, and Sarah Allen, immediately contested the will. Their attorney estimated that Dr. Broadhurst's estate was valued at about $100,000. He said Dr. Broadhurst had carried only about $3,000 insurance, but added that the rest of his estate included his farm at Caldwell and his cattle ranch at Jordan Valley. The situation became even more complicated when Gladys announced that she was pregnant and the father was Dr. Broadhurst. On December 11th, Governor Arnold Williams announced he was granting the extradition of Gladys to Oregon. Her attorneys followed by petitioning for a writ of habeas corpus, which is a legal order that requires a person being imprisoned to be brought before a court or a judge. The purpose is to challenge the legality of a person's imprisonment. They were seeking her release and the nullification of the extradition order that had been approved by Governor Williams. The habeas corpus petition was denied by District Judge Thomas Bucker. On December 19th, Gladys was extradited to Mulhure County Jail. When she arrived, she was seen by a doctor who revealed that Gladys was not pregnant as she had claimed. Early the next year, Gladys's attorneys filed motions to quash her first-degree murder charge, as well as her accessory after-the-fact charge. Defense attorneys Cleve Groom and P.J. Gallagher argued that evidence presented to the grand jury is not admissible. The motion was rejected by Circuit Judge M.A. Briggs and both Gladys and Williams subsequently pleaded not guilty. District Attorney Charles W. Swan announced that he was seeking the death penalty against both of them. On February 28, 1947, the highly anticipated trial of Gladys Broadhurst began with a seated jury. During opening statements, prosecutor Blaine Halleck painted Gladys as the mastermind behind Dr. Broadhurst's murder, claiming that she directed the hand that carried the crime out. He revealed to them how Gladys had married Dr. Broadhurst while still married to Leslie, and then had married Williams while she was still married to both Dr. Broadhurst and Leslie. He took a moment to allow the details to sink in before continuing, telling the jury, so she invented a non-existent twin brother of her fifth husband, claimed he had threatened her and had even tried to blame the murder on the mythical man. 
According to the prosecution's theory, Gladys and Williams had devised a plan to kill Dr. Broadhurst during their trip to California. They were motivated by his inheritance. The first witnesses were Dr. F.L. Adams and Lionel Crawl, who testified about finding bloodstains on the highway and Dr. Broadhurst's truck, trailer, and horse. As they testified, Gladys sat at the defense table and sobbed, but no tears were visible to onlookers. The focus then shifted to the note Gladys produced, claiming it was from Lester, Leslie's evil twin. She told detectives that the handwriting matched Lester's, but according to the prosecution, it was Gladys who had written the note. Prosecutor Halleck produced the note, which had been ripped off from a piece of paper. He then produced another piece of paper, which matched the rip in the note. It was found stuffed down the hot air register in Gladys's bedroom. The prosecutor then called on criminologist Stanley McDonald, who testified that the handwriting on the note matched Gladys's handwriting. Clifford Dixon testified next, identifying Williams as the man he had first seen in the car where Dr. Broadhurst was killed. He said that he had heard a shot at about 4.20 p.m., and when he drove past the spot at 6 p.m., the man was gone. The trial took a dramatic turn during the second week, when the prosecution called Alvin Williams as a witness. The defense team objected, but the judge ruled that he could testify. He took the jury through the same confession he had made to detectives, divulging to jurors how he and Gladys had conspired together to kill Dr. Broadhurst. He admitted that he was madly in love with Gladys and would have done anything she asked. He recounted how he had second thoughts at the last minute before he heard Gladys's voice sing, Don't fail me, don't fail me, in his brain. That voice, he said, drove him to strike Dr. Broadhurst with the wrench. According to Williams, he had second thoughts and went to hand Dr. Broadhurst a cloth to hold over the wound. However, he claimed that Dr. Broadhurst then came at him with a pocket knife. He said he screamed, Don't, Doc, don't. He reached for the shotgun lying at his feet and shot Dr. Broadhurst in the chest. As Williams testified, Gladys stared at him intently from the defense table. During a recess, he commented, If looks could kill, I'd be dead. According to Williams, he decided to confess in court because his defense attorneys believed it would be helpful to his own case. He said he believed it was possible his testimony would prevent him from receiving a death sentence. Williams described how he felt ashamed for what he had done and that he regarded Dr. Broadhurst as a friend. Under cross-examination, he was asked why he didn't warn Dr. Broadhurst about what Gladys was planning. He said, he didn't ask me as a fleeting smile came across his face. Following his testimony, closing arguments were presented. Prosecutor Halleck stated, For two long weeks you have observed her charm and her magnetism. I think it has made itself felt on every single person she has met. If you can see and feel the impact of a person in a proceeding such as this, I ask you to imagine, if you can, the effect on a youth who lived with her for many weeks. He said that without Gladys, there would have been no murder. Gladys's defense attorney, William Langrose, asserted that she was innocent and that she was only implicated by Williams to try and save himself. 
Her other defense attorney, P.J. Gallagher, said to the jury, She had the impulses of the female, and there are some women who have no control over their impulses. She indulged in intimacies like a drunkard would take a glass of beer. He then continued, stating, If you take the adultery out of this lawsuit, you haven't got enough left to wad the shotgun that killed Dr. Broadhurst. The jury were sent off to consider their verdict and deliberated for less than three hours. Gladys Broadhurst was found guilty of first-degree murder. Jurors recommended that she be given a sentence of life imprisonment as opposed to capital punishment. Circuit Judge M.A. Briggs followed their recommendation and handed Gladys a sentence of life in prison. She was asked whether she wanted to make a statement, but replied, I have no statement. Weeks after the sentence was handed down, Gladys sought a new trial. Her attorneys argued that sufficient proof had not been presented that connected her with the murder of Dr. Broadhurst. Her appeal was denied unanimously by the Oregon Supreme Court. On April 25th, Williams came to court for what was supposed to be the beginning of his murder trial. However, he instead pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Days later, Dr. Broadhurst's sisters were in court to contest his will. Williams testified once more, and he professed his love for Gladys before commenting, I'm just trying to get out of this mess. I thought it might help me if it comes time for a parole, if that time ever comes. Dr. Broadhurst's sisters argued that Gladys was not his legal wife since she was still married to Leslie. In April 1948, Gladys was awarded a third of Dr. Broadhurst's estate, which was estimated to be around $51,000. The other two-thirds were awarded to his three sisters. On July 27, 1956, Gladys Broadhurst was paroled from the Oregon State Penitentiary after serving nine years. Alvin Williams was paroled on August 14, 1957, after serving 10 years and three months. Gladys went on to marry her eighth husband, Leo John O'Shea, on May 2, 1961. They lived together in Sacramento until her death on August 14, 1973. Williams married a woman named Nina Cantrell, and they raised a family in Canyon County, Idaho. He passed away May 26, 2010. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.